The Michigan Department of Corrections has a rich history and so many great and sometimes infamous stories to tell. Many of those emanate from the Marquette Branch Prison, which was opened in 1889, back when our 23rd President, Benjamin Harrison, was in the White House, and our 21st Governor, Cyrus Luce, oversaw the state. So if you've ever seen it, you know it not only looks historic, it is historic, and it still is in operation and run incredibly well by a number of dedicated officers and staff members. And supervising it all is Warden Robert Naple, who has spent his entire career at this facility, starting as an officer in 1978. He's also the resident historian of the prison, and I am a total history nerd, so I was really excited for this particular episode. His office contains a number of relics from the facility, including a keeper's cane that is displayed with great reverence near his desk, a cane that will play a particular role in one of the stories you're about to hear. Earlier this summer, I traveled to the UP with our producer, Kamara Lewis, and we spent the afternoon touring the facility and talking with Warden Naple about his prison, its history, both good and bad, and its exciting future. It seems weird to call a prison beautiful, but if any were to earn that moniker, this would be the one. Walking up to the prison, it appears as though you are entering a castle. Its sandstone facade, complete with a some 80-foot center tower and pointed spires that flank it, cast a long shadow over the beautifully manicured front lawn with its ornamental garden and large fountain. And its location is unique as well. It sits overlooking Marquette Bay and Lake Superior, making it the only prison in the state where you encounter a great lake as you pull out of the gate. But back inside, this prison that was originally built for just $200,000 now operates on a $39 million budget with more than 1,000 prisoners who are either level 1 or minimum security prisoners or level 5 or maximum our highest security prisoners. While the administration building, which is the one that looks like a castle with its gothic Romanesque architectural style, is still in use, there are other more modern buildings behind the walls that house lower level prisoners and serve other functions such as the chow hall or the chapel. The maximum security side and its chow hall is where we talked with Warden Naple as it has seen its fair share of history including some of the department's darkest chapters. In the MDOC's more than 100 year history we have lost 13 staff members in the line of duty and four of them came from this prison and three of those four lost their lives in this very building so that's why we started our tour on the second floor, which is now a recreation and workout area filled with dumbbells and weight machines. But on December 11th, 1921, it was a movie theater, and one that would play host to the gruesome scene that led to the first and only time in Michigan that a warden and deputy warden were killed on the job. It was only the second murder in the department's history, and the first such event at the Marquette Branch Prison. Okay, we're at Marquette Branch Prison and this is our auditorium and Marquette Prison's been around for 128 years and a lot of history and some of it is bad history. Back when it was a theater, there was fixed rows seating angled up, projection room in the back, screen in the front. It was in the front of the theater, right about where we are standing, where things went bad. Let's see, 12-11 of 21, there was a movie playing in the afternoon it was a Sunday, <clears throat> and during the movie, uh, Warden Catlin and Deputy Warden Menhennet were stabbed numerous times by uh, four prisoners, and the ringleader was the notorious uh, Gypsy Bob Harper. To say he was notorious is putting it nicely. This was one bad dude. And he stood out. Aside from his violent criminal history, he stood out physically. While he was only five foot seven and 141 pounds, nearly every inch of his body was covered in tattoos, except for his face. 
though he did have an elaborate star tattoo on his forehead and tattoos of small stars on his earlobes. It was said at the time that Harper was one of the most tattooed men in the country. Harper was the leader of a gang in Detroit in 1918, and he and his crew terrorized the city with a crime wave that lasted most of the year. They were eventually apprehended and sentenced to Jackson Prison late in 1918. There, Harper ran into one of the other members of his gang and agreed to fight him to the death. But then, on New Year's Eve, Harper instead stabbed him with a knife from behind while waiting in line in the chow hall for a meal. He was found guilty of the murder, and Gypsy Bob Harper was soon on his way to Marquette Branch Prison to begin his life sentence. When Harper arrived, T.B. Catlin was the deputy warden, a post he had held for 18 years. Prior to that, Catlin was the chief of police and the first sheriff elected in Dickinson County. He took over as warden in February of 1921. Harper, meanwhile, was looking for a way out. He had earned the trust of the previous warden and had gained some special privileges. Some of those were curtailed under Warden Catlin, but not his being able to be allowed to be out later than the other inmates. He used that to his advantage, and in late September, Harper hid in the yard as it got dark and climbed over the wall. A $50 reward was offered, and two days later, the most tattooed man in the country was back behind bars with Warden Catlin. So that brings us back to the movie theater, a few months after the escape and on that fateful Sunday afternoon where Warden Catlin, Deputy Menhennet, and his son Arthur, and Officer Charles Anderson were seated at the front of the theater. That's when Harper, who was hiding in the shadows at the back of the theater, slowly slipped along the wall until he was near the warden. He then leapt out in front of the group and ran in front of the warden, who was his primary target, and viciously attacked him with a large carving knife, striking him in the face and chest. Several other of Harper's henchmen joined in the fray, and the deputy's son was stabbed in the chest and suffered a pierced lung. Officer Anderson sustained a large stab wound and had trouble staying on his feet. Soon, other officers in the back realized something was happening and turned on the lights. Thankfully, the roughly 400 prisoners also in the room did not join in, but as they all tried to crowd around and get a glimpse of what was happening, it made it difficult for the officers in the back of the theater to get up to the front quickly and stop the attack. Deputy Manhattan had tried to protect the warden and was stabbed several times in the process, but he was no match for the gypsy with the knife, as all he had were his bare hands. He had not brought his keeper's cane that doubled as a club when needed. Manhattan's cane was ornately carved with his name and rank into the wood by one of the prisoners there. His cane now rests on a bed of green felt in a wooden and glass case in Warden Naples' office in pristine condition. Had he had it with him that day, it wouldn't still be in such great shape. Officer Anderson gave his keeper's cane to the warden in the midst of the melee, and it is said that Warden Catlin, quote, wore the cane out, unquote, on Harper's head, with just remnants of splintered wood remaining. As the fighting progressed, Warden Catlin was able to get out of the door and started down the stairs to find help and to get away from the knife-wielding gypsy, but Harper followed him out and leapt onto the warden's back and continued his attack. The warden was able to get Harper off his back, but by the time he did, Harper's henchmen caught up to them, and he was alone and outnumbered again. Eventually, Warden Catlin got free and staggered into the deputy's office and barricaded himself inside. By then, other officers arrived and were able to confine the prisoners and render aid to the four men who had been stabbed. Deputy Manhennet uh, succumbed to his injuries and passed away the next day, and Warden Catlin uh, was able to live for about three weeks. Actually, they thought he was uh, coming for a full recovery, 
but then he had a relapse and uh, died suddenly. To this day, it remains up for debate what the rationale was for the attack. There was, there's some conjecture on that. There's history that says that they felt that the, the warden um, had backed off on some of their recreational opportunities, but actually, uh, Warden Catlin uh, expanded some of those recreational uh, activities for them. So, you know, it happened so long ago, we we're almost, you know, 100 years ago, it's hard, it's hard to tell. And there's old newspaper articles that, that talk about that. Back then, in 1921, there were few staff working at the prison, and the warden and deputy warden, and all staff really, didn't have the level of security that we do now. Back then, uh, there wasn't that many people that really worked here. When the place first opened in 1889, there was a, you know, they, don't, they didn't have the, the custody coverage that we have today and not even close to it, so it was probably um, the warden, the deputy, and, and just a handful of officers up here when, when the incident happened. You would think, especially after the warden and deputy warden were brutally murdered in that theater, that the practice of having several hundred prisoners in a dark room together to watch movies would be brought to an end. But you would be wrong. No, the movies continued uh, for decades after that. Actually, when I started here in 1978, we uh, still had movies. It was still used as a theater when 55-year-old Earl DeMars became the first corrections officer to be killed in the line of duty in Michigan. In September of 1973, Officer Earl DeMars was stabbed several times by a prisoner by the name of Richard Goodard, and uh, he died the same day. Officer DeMars had only been on his shift for 15 minutes when the unprovoked attack occurred. It happened up here, and I really don't know the, the particulars of it, and it took quite a bit of, uh, of investigation to actually find out who the murderer was on that. And there was, uh, you know, they were able to put, put it together through, through some circumstantial evidence that uh, they had the right guy. And he was able to get down to the stairs and get down uh, to the control center and, and then died later. Following his death, the department named its training academy after Officer DeMars. Then, in 2015, Governor Snyder came to the prison for a ceremony to rename the section of highway in front of the prison for Officer DeMars. I had the good fortune to be able to fly up with Director Washington for this event and was able to spend some time with Officer DeMars's family, and it was a very nice day. We had a dedication to uh, US-41 uh, just a couple years ago where uh, the governor came up and made a proclamation and dedicated the highway to, to his name. But as I mentioned earlier, this room was the site of three of the four staff murders that have occurred in Marquette. The fourth took place in 1931, when a Dr. Hornbogen was shot and killed by prisoners attempting to escape. They had been able to smuggle in weapons and ammunition and tried shooting their way out of the prison. But their plan failed, and rather than being recaptured, the prisoners killed themselves. Now while thankfully this next bit of history involving the prison doesn't involve the death of any staff, we are even more thankful that it doesn't involve the death of a governor, but it sure came close. And this event took place in the same building where the three staff murders took place, but this time it was one floor below in the chow hall. Yeah, we did. Uh, governor uh, Williams uh, in the 50s came here for uh, a visit and <laughs> I don't know why they would do this, but they brought the governor in right in the middle of feeding and in back in the back of the fruit prep area, and they had a lot of prisoners working back there. 
And anyhow, uh, some notorious prisoners tried to abduct the governor. Uh, they assaulted staff with uh, big mixing paddles and, and they tried to get at the governor and the governor's MSP uh, aide pulled out uh, a handgun and shot one of the prisoners dead. And like a, a mini disturbance happened in the, because of the chow hall was going on. And back then there was like, you know, 150 prisoners in the, in the chow hall. And they had to figure out how to get the gun out of the, the prison before the, the prisoners could, could get the gun. And they're able to, to uh, contain the incident then. Governor G. Menon Williams was more commonly known as Soapy Williams. If you're asking why, maybe you recognize the Menon in his name. His grandfather started the Menon brand of personal care men's products. For those who remember the old commercials, by Menon, that's him. And he was a tough guy. He did fight back, yeah, I don't, I don't know if he was injured or not, but some of our staff here uh, sustained some pretty significant injuries. When Governor Snyder was here for the ceremony for Officer DeMars, we had some time with the governor beforehand in Warden Naples' office, and someone brought up the encounter Governor Soapy Williams had at this facility. And Governor Snyder chimed in and told us that he knew of the story because his security detail made him well aware of it. Not surprisingly, security details aren't too fond of having their governor go inside prisons. But to his credit, Governor Snyder has been in several of ours during his tenure in office. In fact, he's the first Michigan governor to go behind the wire inside of our prisons since the attack that day on Governor Williams. But it is certainly not all bad things that have happened in Marquette since it opened back in the 19th century. You know, we, we did a lot of good things here, too. Um, we had a really good agribusiness operation here up until the very end. And, we had like a hundred milking cows and a beef herd and stuff, and we were kind of self-sustaining there for for many many years, doing doing that type of stuff. And I don't know. There's a lot of old stories where you know the the warden's uh, wife was a socialite in town, and and she liked to have tea parties, so she had uh, her husband uh, commission the terrace garden, and that was built with the gazebo up top, and then she'd have her her socialite friends over, and they'd sip tea together. And it is truly a unique facility. Well, you know, we're old school, we're open bars, you know, it's an old infrastructure, but the place is built like a monument. It's not uh, stick built, it's solid brick and mortar. Um, and we have open bars here, so staff have to learn how to communicate with prisoners, and, um, and that's a two-way street, too. So it works out well, and, you know, a lot of People come to Marquette as transfers, and they say, well, this place really runs well. I think, you know, we've just been doing a lot of things for a very long time. And while we've spent much of our time today talking about its past, there are some exciting things in the facility's future as well. Yes, we're talking about the body farm that we partnered with Northern Michigan University on. It'll be the world's first cold-weather uh, forensic anthropological site, and what they do is they stage corpses in various situations and or scenarios like in cars or in shallow graves or wrapped in visqueen and just and then they study the the uh, rate of decay and the entomology of the bugs and all of those things and I think they're even planning like a, a war crime scene too. It's not up and running but uh, Northern is in the process of uh, filling the department head for that uh, position and uh, everything's on track you know the land conveyance went through and uh, it's just a matter of time before they they start uh, their program up so I'm thinking by this time next year there will be uh, some bodies in the farm. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed our look at the historic Marquette Branch Prison. I especially want to thank Warden Robert Naple, his administrative assistant, Sarah Schroeder, and former officer Ike Wood, whose book, 100 Years at Hard Labor, A History of Marquette State Prison, helped me immensely in filling in some of the details of these old stories. If you've never read it, I encourage you to find yourself a copy. And thank you to the warden and Sarah for making the warden's copy available to me. And thank you again, Warden, for taking Kamara and I on this wonderful tour and a look back at this historic facility. Yeah, thanks for coming. We really like showing the place off and sharing our stories with everybody that will listen. All right, as always, thank you for listening. We'd love it if you would help us spread the word about the podcast. You can do that by subscribing to the show on iTunes and leave us a review. You can always follow the department on Facebook at MI Corrections and on Twitter at Michigan DOC, as well as the FOA account at MDOC FOA and the CFA account at MDOC CFA. And you can send any questions you have to the show using the hashtag AskFieldDays. Until next time, thanks for tuning in to Field Days Podcast. <laughs>